The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. One sunny afternoon, the third week of January 2019, I was in a clean-up mood, and so all the stuff at the back of the section, I dumped into the back of the car and raced off to the dump in Wellington. For those who aren't in Wellington, down the end of a long, dark valley that's called Happy Valley, and then up a ravine to the least attractive part of Wellington you could possibly be. But it's got this second-hand store at the front gate where you can drop stuff off and reduce the cost when you dump your stuff in the actual dump because they measure the weight. And this Sunday afternoon, I drove up thinking this would be a quick trip. But no, as I came around the corner, there's this huge queue, hundreds of cars, all waiting to get into the dump. And I thought, there's something wrong here. This doesn't make any sense. There's nothing special about today. That was my afternoon blown. I was going to have to sit in the queue for two hours. Eventually, I got to the store at the front gate and saw on these boards out the front these signs saying, no more shoes, no more clothes, no more knickknacks, no more books. And there were piles of stuff gathered around the front gate. And I got out of the car and went to the guy and said, what's going on here? This doesn't look right. And he said, bloody Marie Kondo. I had no idea what he was talking about. He said, ask your wife. And then he went off. He wasn't very happy. So back to the car, tried to Google it. No mobile phone reception. Spent another hour in a queue, dumped my stuff, went home, spoke to my wife as I walked in the front door. Who is Marie Kondo and what is this all about? And because she actually does know her fashion and lifestyle, told me about the Marie Kondo effect, which is first week of January, Netflix drops Marie Kondo, this is 2019, as a, you know, start the new year with a cleanup. The whole spark joy, remove extraneous things from your life, only keep the things that really give you joy. And everyone did it. And all around the world, secondhand shops were completely overwhelmed with stuff because we've got so much stuff now. It's also cheap to buy clothes, knickknacks, all the stuff you hoover up from the warehouse and Kmart and all that online stuff. We're so good at buying cheap stuff. And it is quite a miracle of modern life. And for those who think it's always been like this, Uh, As an old person at the age of 54, I can tell you it's not. Back in 1981, when I was 13 or 14 and thought that I was fashionable in my uh, little town of Cambridge in the Waikato, coming off a dairy farm, I lusted after a pair of Adidas suede sneakers. 
I thought they were the coolest things. There was one shop in Cambridge. For three or four months, I'd walk into the shop and pick up these sneakers and feel the suede and just lust after it. But I had to save because it was $95 in 1981 to buy a pair of Adidas suede sneakers. And there wasn't a lot of choice. Eventually, I got them and I wore them to death over the next 10 years. And I love them to bits. And it makes me think I need to buy another two or three pairs now because, of course, they've come back. But when, of course, you look at the price, $95 in 1981 is the equivalent of $450 now. But, of course, when I Google Adidas Campus 80s brown suede sneakers, they're $99 from the shoes megastore or wherever else I could get that stuff. So the price has dropped by 75% in 30 years, 40 years, actually. And the world's different because of the arrival of China into the globalised supply chain in 2001 when it entered the World Trade Organisation, the increasing ability of supply chains to use technology to shift things around, to know where they were, to talk to other people in other languages, to design things, to send instructions at the blink of an eye. All of that has created what we know now of as our globalised supply chain for products. It's transformed the world. It's dropped inflation down. It's given us a lot of choice. And for those people who haven't got a lot of income, it's meant that their lifestyle hasn't fallen, in real terms, as much as it could have. So that's the new world we're living in. But might be about to change and COVID is that moment where we ask the question, is that incredibly complicated, just-in-time, complex system of globalised supply where a component or a thing that's grown or built in Mississippi is shipped to Latin America and then over to Sri Lanka and down to Indonesia and back up to India, that all of these things in our globalised supply chain rely on nothing ever going wrong, everything working just as it should. And we've discovered, of course, with COVID and with that container ship stuck in the Suez Canal, that actually things do go wrong. And sometimes when you disrupt things, they don't just stop and then restart again. There's a complex system that's been rearranged and that's really difficult to put back together again, particularly when you start to question the very basis of it, which is this issue of just-in-time supply chains, not having stocks anywhere, not being able to deal with a shock because you've got no fat. And over the last 18 months, we've all discovered we didn't really have much fat in our supply chains. Suddenly, things go missing. So what happens when you have these disruptions? Everyone goes, okay, I'm not going to order one container load of stuff. I want two container loads of stuff so I can store one container load for the next disruption, which means, of course, twice as many containers having to go around the world all at the same time, which has further uh, extended those disruptions. Remember, a third of the world's mariners are no longer on those ships because they've got COVID or they need a break after a year at sea. And you've got a lot of the world's container ports locked down or in all sorts of problems with labour shortages. Real disruptions to the global supply chain forced us to think about the true costs of these incredibly cheap things that we have. Like, for example, the toaster I threw out in the third week of January, which I needed to get a replacement for. I went down to the warehouse and walked in and thought, oh, where's the cheapest one I can get? It'll be 20 or 30 bucks. No, $12. I thought, that can't be right. No one can actually make something like that for $12. It's got complicated. It's got stamped metal, plastic... 
electronic componentry, all sorts of stuff put together by someone being paid something, you'd have to hope. And, of course, all of that metal and plastic and rubber, that generated carbon emissions. Who's paying the price of that? And what about these companies that are churning out stuff and ejecting the leftovers into the river or, or the landfill creating methane, which then heats up the atmosphere? Who's actually paying the price for that? Well, globally, of course, now with climate change, we understand we all are. And now we have to understand when we buy something at the end of that supply chain, who is bearing the costs? Who paid the price? Was there human slavery involved? Was the cotton farmed sustainably? Or did they suck the water dry from a local aquifer, which means that you know, you're not going to have enough water for people to live on in future? And what about in the Bangladeshi factory? Is it so awful that when there's a fire, dozens of people die? Or what about the person who's on the container ship? Are they being forced there? Are they pseudo-servants or indentured slaves? Lots of these questions aren't answered, and they certainly aren't on the label when we pick up the T-shirt at the local version of H&M or the warehouse or Kmart. COVID-19 has disrupted this unending dive towards very low prices for all sorts of manufactured goods, particularly clothing, homeware, that sort of thing. And we're now asking the question, how do we build some resilience? How do we make sure the costs are included? How do we, as conscious consumers, do the right thing? Because at the moment, it's very hard to tell when you pick up that T-shirt what actually is involved in that supply chain. In this week's episode of When the Facts Change, I dive into a couple of things that are just being launched in New Zealand, a new website called All Things Considered, which is a New Zealand attempt to try and apply some sunlight of transparency to the globalised supply chains in the fashion industry. John Holt is a well-known figure in New Zealand's tech venture capitalist system of venture capitalism. Uh, he was the founder of Sonar 6, and uh, he's been behind the Kiwi Landing Pad and also homes.co.nz, so he knows his online stuff. He's built this tool that will allow a lot of this information to be compared brand against brand and for that information to be cleaned, sometimes by consumers, sometimes by the companies themselves, so that when people go into a store or search for something online, there is a way to know what the actual cost is. This week, we also talked to Sam Jones, the founder of Little Yellow Bird, which is a, an apparel company selling T-shirts, often uh, to corporates, but also to individuals. And she'll tell us from the point of view of the fashion industry itself, how she is looking to do things in a sustainable way and to make sure that everyone knows about it. It's a fascinating story about how our world works now and how it might be changing, thanks to not just the power of technology, but the power of consumers. I'm Bernard Hickey. That's in this week's When the Facts Change, a weekly podcast on the Spinoff Podcast Network, brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank. Well, kia ora, and welcome to Sam Jones from Little Yellow Bird. Sam, tell us who Little Yellow Bird is and what you do. So Little Yellow Bird is an apparel manufacturing company. We sell 
uniforms and apparel to individuals and cafes through to big organisations like New Zealand Post and Air New Zealand. And our whole kind of point of difference and ethos is full transparency around where and how the clothes are produced and constantly striving to improve the sustainability of our products and make them better for people and planet. So tell us about um, how your T-shirts are made, where the choices you make about who does it, um, the materials, all of that. Our primary focus is natural fibres. So our cotton products are all 100% organic grain-fed cotton uh, from India. And we source the cotton from two cooperatives in East India. Uh, We track the whole process from farm through to ginning, how the fabric is milled, dyed, and actually made into a garment. Cotton uh, is notoriously uh, water-heavy as a uh, material. How do you um, assess that in East India? Yeah, it it really is. Um, And as the demand for cotton has increased, the, the places that cotton is now grown is really not ideal conditions for growing cotton. But where we source from, uh, we rely on on the rain. So whereas a lot of cotton has been grown with chemicals and pesticides and a lot of irrigated water to you know force the land into producing multiple crops per year, we really are kind of just, just using natural farming techniques and how cotton used to be grown 50 years ago is really sort of the, the process that our cotton goes through. Through. So we only grow one one crop per year um, and it's timed in with the, the rainy season. So that's a huge reduction in water just on that aspect. And then there's a few other things uh, that we do, such as um, the dyeing systems, which is fully um, fully circular. So the, the wastewater is returned back to drinking quality water and then used again to dye the next batch. So there's a few different things like that that really reduce the water intake in our products. And um, what about the other things that go into making the T-shirt or the other apparel that you have, including, you know, the manufacturing process? Who does the sewing and the cutting and the dyeing and all of that? How do you make sure that it's um, a nice place for people to work? Yeah, I mean, this has also been a a huge journey and it's been sort of we're in year seven now. Um, My background was in supply chain management in the New Zealand Air Force. And so I really took this, um, I guess, philosophy and practice and the importance around, you know, for aircraft, it's really important that you need to know exactly all the components for aeronautical safety and really applying that to a fashion supply chain. So back in the beginning, I spent a lot of time in India networking and visiting and spending time working and volunteering in factories as well to really understand the process And, yeah, tracing back the supply chain, what is consistently true is that the further you go back along the supply chain, the further risks there are and the the further risks to environmental degradation and human rights because they're they're less seen. So for me, um, absolutely how it's manufactured is important, but actually all the way through that supply chain is is important as well. So how do you assess what's... um good and clean, that it's always good and clean and all the things that you can't see with your eyes are doing well. Yeah, and well, actually COVID has really changed that for us because previously I was in India a few times a year. We had a staff member over there. We're fortunate that we've already got some really good standing relationships with our suppliers, but we also do rely on things like third-party certifications and third-party auditing systems. The main thing is really just having visibility on that supply chain because you can't improve what you can't see. And I think that's 
actually the case for consumers as well. No one wants to buy, you know, products that have had child labour involved in it, but many brands purposely, you know, don't disclose this or, or they don't encourage people to ask those questions. And I think there's been a big shift in the last few years of people really starting to ask how their products are made and, and where and what were the conditions. Can you give us um, an idea of what the, the big fast fashion industry that you know we know of, the huge chains with stores and all around the world that are pumping things out for seven or eight bucks, what, what actually goes into making those and what are the problems that can arise? Yeah, and I mean, it's not just the big, you know, you know, your big global retailers. There's plenty of companies in New Zealand that also are selling products that are just too cheap. Um, and what goes into that is, you know, unsafe work conditions, child labour, poor environmental policies. My key message is always if it's, if it's cheap, someone somewhere has paid for it. But I think the problem is that a lot of times consumers don't necessarily know how cheap it is because there's often no correlation between what they're paying and what the factory might be being paid. And so the only way to really get an understanding of that is to follow brands and really get an understanding of what their policy and ethics and what they're about, because there's plenty of brands that still maybe sell their product at a, um, a price point where you would assume people will be getting paid decently for that. But once you understand how many middlemen are involved or if their business model you know, relies on wholesalers, you can pretty quickly see that a product that's maybe been sold for, say, $50, a T-shirt, for example, but they're wholesaling it for $5, you can see where um, the factory cannot possibly have been given enough money to compensate their workers. And, and I know that because I can't even buy the cotton for that price, but I'm still competing at a similar price point for the end product it becomes really difficult for consumers to actually know what they're buying and they're having to rely on, you know, even codes of conduct that are often really difficult for them to understand. A lot of brands will say things like, we meet the minimum legal requirement or we pay the minimum legal wage, but it requires that the consumer knows what the legal wage is in that country and often that's, you know, 20% of what the living wage benchmark would be. So it's just... We're operating in quite a broken system. It all sounds a bit Wild West. There's no doubt quite a few different types of standards and various people looking to sell trademarks and, you know, um, fancy green swooshes and <laughs> all sorts of things. How do you, as a, a manufacturer and retailer, how do you pick out the good ones from the bad ones and hope that one of them will stick? Because that's the risk that you... You put your money down on on one of the um, the box ticking approvers, and then later on down the track, it turns out you know there's there's another one that's better. For me, I usually use certifications as that kind of first level. Am I interested in working with this place? But time and time again, it's actually the ownership structure and how engaged that individual is with their staff and one thing that I've really noticed is um, owners that have you know worked in the garment industry you know maybe they were a machinist to start out with and have built themselves up and now they really care about workers rights are time and time again the, the most ethical suppliers I mean COVID has just been a really great example you know asking a lot of questions on how the workers in the factory are going and, and my best example from one of our factories was 
Um, they had already turned the cafeteria into an isolation ward well before before um, India got taken over by um, by Delta. They had pre-positioned oxygen. They paid for COVID vaccines for all of their staff and all of their families. They got an extra ration of eggs and protein or something as like a gift um, and a couple of days off um, after that vaccination. And it's things like that that, you know, it's not prescribed or anything, but it's just they're paid well enough to provide those benefits and they want to do that because that's why they are doing it um, as opposed to that it's just a profit-churning machine. So how do you make decisions about where to go? How do you find the, the best one? Yeah, no, you know, we've been doing this for a while now and we've developed relationships with the factories that have performed the best and have the best sustainability credentials as well. And then we prioritise based on a number of things, but how well they pay their, their workers and any additional benefits that they provide. Uh, one factory actually has just gone fully solar. So that's another benefit or reason why we would want to work with them. So New Zealand um, is not the richest country in the world and we're sort of notorious for being a $2 shop nation. Uh, uh, how do you compete against those companies that are able to just go for the cheapest, lowest common denominator? I mean, how how much do consumers really care about this if it means they're having to pay more? Yeah, I mean, I don't think everyone does care, and I think it's a privilege to care about it as well. So um, this has been, I guess, part of our learning journey is that we're not we're not competing on price, and we we shouldn't try to. I think that for too long, I I thought that we needed to be cheaper than some of our competitors. And actually, I just recently wrote a blog post about why we can no longer do that. We've recently done a price increase um, from you know eighteen months of increased costs that we've been absorbing. But more and more people are caring and I think what we're seeing definitely is that once people find out about us and know about us and understand you know all the different things that we do that goes into that price point then they do become really loyal customers because they believe in more than just buying the t-shirt it's also about you know what happens to this garment at the end of its life and you know, we also will take back other brands' cotton products. Um, so we, you can buy a take-back bag on our website. We charge for other brands' cotton returns because it's not our responsibility to subsidise that. But our products are free to return. And so I think people can really see that we're doing all these extra things that we don't have to. Like, we didn't have to, you know, spend a bunch of resources and time and effort into doing that. And if we didn't care about sustainability, we probably wouldn't. But... You know, I didn't start this business because I care so much about fashion. I started this business because I could see an issue with the supply chain that I wanted to solve. How do you see the difference in the way buyers approach things between individuals and companies? Because I'm guessing, you know, corporate buyers of fashion are some of your customers. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. We've definitely got some companies that I kind of think buy from us, you know, to do the odd social media posts are included in their reports to say that they work with us, but then they're still buying the bulk of their products from other um, maybe less reputable suppliers. Um, but I think that there are some really genuine companies that are just trying to 
do the best that they can and move their procurement practices to more sustainable options. So what would be the ideal system, if you like, for certifying or approving or really understanding and being able to compare brands and products in the way that, you know, some products have, you know, government standards and stamps and there are ISO 9033 rules and all of that in a market which is truly global where, you know, a supply chain might have, you know, 73 different components compiled in 42 different places. It's gone through 15 different sets of hands. You know, how is someone who rocks up to a, uh, a, a department store really able to understand and compare one with the other and make the choice that has some sort of real meaning? Yeah, I think it's actually about taking another step back and as individuals just asking if we need these products. I think that there are so many certifications and different benchmarks and things, and these are all really great. But at the end of the day, we actually just need people to buy less and buy quality and whichever certification system, you know, people need to do their own research and, and understand. And I think, rather than just impulse buying, if you take that time to follow a brand and understand their journey and even email them or ask them a question before you make that purchase, you'll be a lot more informed than simply just buying based on it's got a certain tick or a a stamp. So we've talked to John Holt, the founder of All Things Considered. Uh, You're on the um, manufacturer retailing end of the spectrum, someone who is looking to show your consumers and allow them a way to compare and contrast and get information transparently. You know, how are you involved with um, All Things Considered and and what do you think it uh, might achieve? Yeah, I'm definitely a, a fan of, um, I guess, transparency and encouraging people to share more information. Our supplier code of conduct is listed on our website, so anybody can can go and read that. We've got information on our circularity work, um, and we get a lot of emails and, and people sending us queries or, or questions. So I think it's what I want to see is that normalised, I guess, is that every brand has that or every brand um, includes that key information or makes it accessible. Um, often it's really hidden. Often it's written in a way that's really confusing. We're constantly trying to improve that or provide more clarity for, for people if it's not clear. So this is um, all a result, really, of this revolution we've seen over the last 20 or 30 years where particularly manufactured goods have become part of globalised supply chains and consumers in all different parts of the world now have access to what, on the face of it, is incredibly cheap products. Uh, I remember when uh, there was just one shop that sold T-shirts and they cost $30 in 1983 and it was manufactured in New Zealand. Um, And now, of course, you can buy a T-shirt for a, a quarter or a tenth of that, I suppose, Um, and this is 40 years on. And now we've realised that we've built this machine for um, cheapness and choice and globalisation. It's suddenly dawning on us, not just because of the, what economists would call externalities of, you know, imposing costs on others that aren't paid for by the consumer or the manufacturer, 
that this incredibly complex globalised supply chain, when it gets disrupted by an earthquake or a pandemic or whatever, can't really be sustained easily. And we're discovering that with higher prices and all sorts of things. Just stepping back a bit, do you think this sort of era of globalisation, 30 years of um, ever-lowering prices and ever more interconnected and cheap supply chains is, is over? Or are we just going to find um, safe and friendly ways to do it and cut all the nasty guys out of the chains? I don't think it's over, but I think, again, people are more aware of it and governments and organisations are trying to limit it or limit the impacts of it. So I think we can see that happening. I think there's a, a whole new generation of people that are really interested in sustainability and really prioritise that in their, in their spending patterns or, or non-spending patterns, actually. Um, but there's still really famous fast fashion companies springing up. So there's obviously a demand for that as well. But it's difficult because even in terms of onshoring certain aspects, like if we take um, Aotearoa, for example, there's there's no infrastructure here anymore. So we can, um, we can stitch our products here, but there's no cotton mill. We don't grow cotton in New Zealand. So the raw materials still come from somewhere else. Yeah, do you think technology could help solve these problems? There's lots of talk about using blockchain and, you know, um, tracking things from pasture to plate and, and no doubt from um, cotton farm to wardrobe. Yeah, it plays a role. But again, I mean, the one thing that doesn't require technology, it just requires consumer attitude changes or, or changes in behaviour is knowledge. And that's actually pretty free, free for, for most of us here that would actually have much more impact than any high-tech solution, at least as a first kind of first tier. Sam Jones, thank you very much from Little Yellow Bird. Up next, we talk to John Holt, who's building a machine that allows people to compare one company against another, apples with apples, on who's clean, who's doing the right thing. That's next. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on the current grim status of the global and local economy. Globally, economic output and activity is slowing. Higher interest rates are weighing heavily on demand and crushing activity. It's not pretty, but it's what's needed to bring down inflation. Here in Aotearoa, the outlook is soft at best. Our impressive surge in net migration helps lift activity, but still the economy is weakening under the weight of the Reserve Bank and a softening global backdrop. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. 
Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Well, kia ora to John Holt, who's in Wellington and has something he's launching. I'm keen to find out about. Uh, John, before you do, tell us what you're planning. Could you give us a bit of background on, you know, how you got from there to here? Yeah, certainly can, Kira Bernard. It's great to be here. Look, how I got here was essentially uh, a journey in, I guess, the world of business. My first startup, if you like, was uh, a software as a service company called Sonar 6. Um, we built that, a couple of us, um, as co-founders and sold it to a publicly listed American company 2012, actually, quite a long time ago. And then prior to that, I'd actually met one of my co-founders during my corporate career, which sort of spanned a number of really big organisations, multinationals generally. Um, Hewlett-Packard's probably the one I, I refer back to um, uh, most, uh, especially to this question, because... Um, I don't know how much you know about HP, but, you know, it really was an organisation built on the values of the two founders, um, uh, Hewlett and Packard. So uh, I've had this fascination, and I guess fast forward to today and been involved as a founder in a couple of other businesses, um, homes.co.nz, and also my um, non-profit I founded with a number of folks in the uh, entrepreneurial community in New Zealand called Kiwi Landing Pad, which we've just reimagined and renamed Territory 3 started to look at this sort of element of what actually sits behind a great business other than a balance sheet and profit. Um, and, of course, the answer to that, you know, depending on which language you're in, uh, which angle you're in, which country you're in, is, is sustainability and ethics. So that's really, uh, I guess, the lens that I look at. Um, I'm a historian by academic training uh, in terms of looking at what, uh, what makes organisations great um, and I guess what makes actually organisations sustainable as well. So um, what are you trying to achieve with uh, All Things Considered? Yeah, so All Things Considered is a play into a real problem that we see growing rapidly in the fashion industry. And I don't know how much our audience knows about the fashion industry, but um, I just became fascinated with it. Uh, it's a 2.5 trillion US dollar industry. It involves almost one in nine of every human on the planet and some part of the supply chain in terms of working in it. And it's one of the most um, significant contributors to a lot of the issues that we see daily now, sadly, around the environment and society. So what sort of problems come out of this um, industry? Yeah, so so the big problems are that, I guess, you know, what's really been nice in the last few years is that government and government regulation has started to kick in and there's a realisation from global organisations as well, like the United Nations, that this problem that we have around societal conditions, around environment, climate change, just can't be solved by, by governments. And so they're really starting to regulate and bring into play corporates, uh, companies of all shapes and sizes who essentially you know, provide a lot of the, the base offending, I guess, around us. And so companies have started to respond to that. Some of them have responded authentically and some of them have not. So... For a consumer, you know, all things considered is about really just trying to navigate a huge minefield of claims and certifications and various marketing initiatives that, um, you know, sadly most are currently not that authentic. So what sort of things are measured uh, for these these companies in terms of human slavery, carbon emissions, all the bits and pieces that you think, oh, that's ugly, I don't want to wear that? 
Yeah, so that's a great question. So currently the answer is nothing from a standardised perspective. And that's one of the big changes that you're seeing in regulation. So depending, again, on which, uh, uh, which continent you're on, there's a move to what they call uh, an integrated reporting. And so what that means is that companies are actually going to have to go way beyond what they used to in terms of reporting to the jurisdictions and the, and the governments that they sit within. And that goes to you know, pretty much all the things you're talking about. So you know, you're actually going to, just like you have an annual report with your profit and your balance sheet, start talking about you know the people aspects, your contribution to the environment, uh, and the initiatives you have around those. Um, so you know there's just going to be a lot more for companies to uh, be accountable for. And I'm guessing that um, every country has a slightly different set of standards or a set of watchdogs for this, and every company, many of which uh, have global supply chains, um, have various different places that they report to. How on earth are you going to compare apples and apples and then show them up as pairs or whatever it is you do to someone who's thinking of buying something or investing in something or working somewhere? Yeah, well, welcome to the challenge. I mean, it's just a multifaceted beast in terms of how you do that. And then, of course, there's the, um, the issue of ignorance and intention. So for a lot of these companies, you know, to your point about how big the supply chains are, fashion would have one of the largest and most expensive ones, if you can imagine, you know, cotton coming from a field and then ultimately ending up in a high street store as clothing. Um, and really, a lot of the companies, you know, quite genuinely have never worried about where uh, this has come from and what sort of elements around, you know, resources, society and the environment have actually occurred before it's turned up in their, in their home country to be, you know, to be manufactured into clothing. So let's say I'm um, a consumer, I feel like I do the right thing, I don't want to be nasty. I walk into, you know, any store really, H&M, Farmers, the warehouse, I don't want to pick on anyone in particular. And I look at this nice T-shirt, it feels good, the price is good and the colour's good. I check the little label and it says made in China, designed in Madrid or whatever. How much can I find out now and how would I do it? Yeah, so it's a great question and it really depends on the organisation and this is really at the heart of, um, of what we're looking to do with All Things Considered. So the, the marketing and the active sort of promotion of an organisation to your question to tell you about those things uh, and then, of course, that's just really up to the organisation itself as to whether they decide to to go deep into that, you know, it might be a very small label you're looking at, uh, or on the flip side of that, you know, it could be a very large label with, you know, a plethora of badges and certifications that they've sort of joined up to, to highlight some sort of independent evaluation of just, you know, what sort of cotton they're using or, you know, what wages were paid. So for a consumer, it's just, it's just a minefield of confusion as to, you know, whether these certifications and these labels are genuine or whether they're marketing. So how come there hasn't been someone else in the world who's decided to be, you know, the, the trademark for good, who gathers all this information together, um, creates some sort of chip or brand name or specially unfakeable sign that gets stuck on a T-shirt label or whatever it is, and when I point my phone at it, it tells me this is the cleanest, friendliest fuzziest, loveliest thing that I've ever seen compared to everyone else? Yeah, well, look, wouldn't it be easy if it, if it was uh, just just that simple? But I think it's just like building startups and different companies. You know, why are there multiple email clients that you can use or why, you know, do you have 20 task management apps that you could choose from? 
I think, you know, the preferences of people and organisations and companies are all different slightly. And even if you're on the same vision, you know, I think, you know, this is where the global organisations like the United Nations have come in. They've sort of they've sort of set a lighthouse up, which is the sustainable development goals. So these are sort of 17 categories that, you know, companies and countries can move towards. And, of course, there's some real metrics around that around 2030. So, you know, there are goals, um, the categories, and then there are actual metric reductions uh, in most cases that they're looking for by 2030. So no one's tried to take that sort of massive matrix on as a singular organisation. There are certainly some that hope they'll scale to be that solution you're describing, but um, it's just a massive task. So how do you and the All Things Considered team get hold of this data, keep it clean, keep it updated, deal with any complaints and compare apples with apples. That sounds like an awful lot of requests for annual reports and people smelling glossy documents. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the challenge for us is, you know, what we're trying to do really, and it's the initial uh, solution, is to just bring what's currently out there as portrayed by the companies and put it in one place. So it's just that much easier to understand, you know, let's say there's a certification that you've seen in a couple of stores from, you know, places you buy from. You know, what is that certification? You know, so we create a page for that certification and we also make it easy for you to quickly see which organisations that you may or may not be shopping with today in the fashion industry have, have got that. And so you've got that sort of full circle without, you know, doing what you have to do today, which is go site by site. Uh, and how we get that info is, is really simple and transparent. We take it off uh, the public websites of those brands and of those certifications. So not overly f- sophisticated to begin with and certainly not any um, judgment from our point of view, just a, a really simple play about making it easy to, to look at it all in one place. And what are the things that you're focused on? What are the metrics you're focused on at the moment? Is it carbon emissions? Is it number of slaves per bale or what? what, what how do you do it? Yeah, it's um, so if you if you think about you know hotels.com and booking.com, these these sort of aggregators of hotels. There's a there's another one above that now called Trivago, which essentially is the aggregator of aggregators. So you know we kind of see ourselves in that role at the moment in terms of bringing uh, a lot of metrics and a lot of work and a lot of tools um, and, and and you know deep research and information collecting around those to people to you know basically just make sense of. Uh, to a large extent themselves, to the level that they're comfortable about. So lots of different sites and tools that we researched had tried to actually establish metrics. But, of course, you know, you just run into that scale challenges, you know, to, to really have a metric established, you need to have some really decent momentum around the number of people that are prepared to use it and understand it. So how is this all going to work with um, search engines and shopping sites? Because we've we've had this, as you say, development of aggregators of aggregators and, and usually at the end of the day it comes down to what does Google tell me when I Google, you know, best, most sustainable T-shirt? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, Google works really on relevance and context in a lot of times. So the number of times a particular search term or a company turns up ultimately determines how quick and how far up the list that becomes. So the mission for us at All Things Considered is actually to create a community of considered consumers. And so that's really at the core. Um, Now, once they start talking uh, about these different brands and questions they have and so forth, we want to bring those brands actually into the conversation so that community extends not just from the consumers but to the companies. So once you have that sort of conversation happening at scale, 
then you're going to get you know the attention of the search engines and 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 the relevance there. So that's that's our goal with that. How do you keep it clean, so to speak? Make sure the bad actors don't get in there and start writing nasty reviews, or worse, the companies get in there and start deleting the bad ones or being nasty. There seems to be a history of social networks devolving to our worst possible angels when we're allowed to. Oh, totally. It's a massive problem. And, you know, we're not going to have all the answers as to how to do that to begin with. But, you know, I look to Wikipedia, you know, as a concept, and um, that's certainly in our vision, is that you reach a certain point of scale with that community. And, you know, community is fascinating, particularly around fashion. You know, you have people who actively research to incredibly deep levels for no other reason than it's a passion of theirs, and then they share that with their social contacts and community. So you get a lot of fact-checking, you get a lot of verification and validation just simply by enabling that conversation. So, for example, if a company sort of jumps into that, um, you know, if the community like Wikipedia has ended up is at scale, then someone will correct that or at least call out a request to sort of have some sort of uh, clarification pretty quickly. And do people really, really care about this when they make their decisions? Because there's an awful lot of um, posturing and, you know, performative action online. But it's amazing when you put people in a quiet place where they can't, they think they're not being watched, and you ask them, do you want the cheap T-shirt or the expensive one, and they're exactly the same, but you know the expensive one might not have uh, done all the bad things. It's amazing how many people actually choose the cheap one. Uh, sadly, you know, for, for my generation, um, it's less of an issue. Right. But we've got this generation called Generation Z, or Generation Z if you live in the US. And, you know, the research around them is that they are highly active around this. You know, they're not just happy to sort of throw a bottle in a different coloured bin and do their bit for the planet. You know, they actually, you know, we've seen them in things like the Extinction Rebellion and, you know, really active groups where they get angry and they get out. You know, I guess personified for a lot of people by Greta Thunberg um, and her, you know, very impassioned calls. Well, you know, you, you can look now across all of business and society, and I guess most visibly for me was the impact that those meme traders had on the big stocks like GameStop and AMC. So, you know, digitization has reached the point where these active Gen Zs can really, really uh, make an impact on a brand if they don't like what they're seeing. So um, this looks like fun, something that you could use to try to um, understand what you're buying. But I'm trying to work out how do you make money out of this? Because I, I know you're a capitalist, John. I am. I am a capitalist for good, Bernard, is the, is the vision. And so, um, you know, the first part is building a community. And, you know, we did that with homes.co.nz. Uh, here in New Zealand, and and we just have people, you know, incredibly interested in the value of their of their homes, almost on a monthly basis. Uh, pretty crazy when you think about it, because you don't look to sell your home every every month. But I think here it's really this um, uh, status that people get from clothing and fashion. You know, fashion is an expression for people, and a lot of that expression to you know the point of those Gen Zs is now coming out of you know what type of clothing that is in terms of where it was made where it came from, is it ethical, is it not? So, you know, that's the driver, I think, to um, to get to scale. So then to your question, how do you make money out of that? Well, I think that's going to be increasingly important to brands. Um, we're not focusing on the brands too much at the moment. We're just sourcing what they are saying to the world from their own websites. But ultimately, we'll offer them the ability to engage in that community, and they will pay for that because I just think it's really useful information for them in terms of research, uh, in terms of just sentiment from the community that ultimately either becomes their customer or not.
So as a former publisher of newspapers and magazines where the advertisers sometimes give you a call, how do you avoid being gamed by the customers saying, yeah, I'd love to engage with that community, but that blasted, blasted person who says this, can you just delete him or delete his comment? Because I don't like it. Yeah, and, and that's the, 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 the tricky question right through this, and it just comes to the T word, it's transparency. So, you know, when we do turn on some sort of commercial aspect for this after building community, because there is no commerce if the community is not interesting enough, uh, it's all about having a transparent pricing uh, arrangement so consumers can see what these brands are, are paying, uh, and that needs to be equitable across all. You, know, you can't have a premium product that you know one brand can can purchase and just um, you know suddenly get preference over what's seen on their site and so forth, and um, and and that's the key. You know, and I, I have a saying, you know, you know, transparency builds trust, and ultimately trust builds transaction. And I think you know we we live arguably in a post trust post truth world, so you know there's a lot to actually bringing that back to somebody on a relatively simple platform like All Things Considered. And um, what's your ambition here? What does success look like? Yeah, so, you know, I really believe now that the best organisations in the world have genuinely and and authentically for for decades mixed profit and purpose. So the vision for All Things Considered is to have an impact on the world in terms of building a great company and all the things that traditionally go with that from a you know, capitalistic point of view, but also having an impact, you know, to the point of the, the meme traders on GameStop and AMC also have an impact on the fashion supply chain in terms of improving some of these key sort of offences they have around environment and society just simply by giving consumers, you know, much more consideration much more quickly and then they vote with their dollar. And what's the response you've had in the first few weeks from these, you know, big international fashion brands if they... Um have they sicked the lawyers onto you or anything? No, and I think that, you know, there is obviously not going to be a situation where you, uh, where you please everybody. You know, I said with homes, you know, when the valuation came out every month, you either got punched in the face or patted on the back. But either is good, right, in terms of invoking a reaction with somebody. The key is really just um, uh, genuinely convincing them that there is usefulness to this. I mean, these brands are going to get called out for these things regardless of whether we do it or somebody else does it. Uh, and ultimately with the regulation side of things coming in, it's going to cost them a lot of money uh, just as much as it's going to cost them you know, consumers and brand reputation. John Holt, thank you very much. Thanks, Bernard. Well, thank you to John Holt and to Sam Jones at All Things Considered and Little Yellow Bird. That's this week's episode of When the Facts Change. We do it weekly, so you need to subscribe so you get all the good ones through automatically into your system. This has been a podcast on the Spinoff Podcast Network, brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank. I'm Bernard Hickey. That's When the Facts Change. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank I'm making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, Kiai Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.